Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check us out on the web at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. Today's guest has worked as a Wall Street Journal technology reporter and as the business editor for The New Yorker. Her fiction has been honored by the O. Henry Prize. She currently lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. Today's guest is the author of The Immortal King Rao. Please welcome Wayani Vara. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. The reason I skipped over your name is because we were you were just trying to teach me how to say it. And for some reason, I can't say it. I don't know what's wrong with me as a white guy born and raised in Pennsylvania and Arizona. I'm so sorry. It's no, it's my fault. Not you. It's like the fact that I can't say it is absurd. Um, <laughs> tell readers how to say your name and correctly pronounce it because I was, you, you taught me pineapple at, <laughs> like for emphasis and I still got it wrong. So please introduce yourself. I've never, done I feel this. like I even, I feel like maybe pineapple is not even quite right. So no, I, I was just before you started recording, Adam, just so your listeners are aware, <laughs> I was explaining that, um, I, um, I'm confused about my own name because mm-hmm. I have often gone by Wahini, Wahini, but the, the way my parents say it is Wahini mm-hmm. and, um, most Indian people or Indian Americans I know, or South Asian people, um, will either say Wahini or Vahini. So mm-hmm. I told you that I have decided to kind of go rogue and just like <laughs> tell each interviewer a different version of my name. And unfortunately for you, <laughs> I chose for <laughs> you Wahini, um, which you were basically pronouncing correctly, like was just like a slight a emphasis slight. that sounded mm-hmm. off to my ear. But I feel like that's that's OK with me if it's OK with you. It's OK with me. I, I'm glad okay. we talked about it because names like before we were recording are important to me. Um, pronunciation is important. Like my last name is Vitkavage. I get Vitkavage a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Other things. I feel like last night. So it's, it's, it's important to me. I will practice by the time I record the intro to get your name excellent, perfectly excellent. right. But we're here not to talk about your name. We're here to talk about your book. We can talk about your name for 40 minutes, but let's talk about your book. Uh, Tell readers uh, what your book is and a little bit of what it's about. Yes. So um, uh, my book is called The Immortal King Rao. And um, it is the story of a kid who's born on this coconut grove in South India in the 1950s um, in a Dalit family. And um, Dalit is the term for people who have been formerly or sometimes still branded as untouchable. Um, And he is a very precocious kid. He grows up and um, studies computer programming and moves to the U.S. in the 1970s. And there he starts a tech company that's a sort of like Apple or Microsoft style tech company. But in, in the world of the book, this tech company gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when the sort of contemporary timeline of the book opens. Um, This company has become the biggest and most powerful company in the world. And not only that, um, King Rao, who is this kid who was born on the Coconut Grove and is the CEO of the company, has um, engineered a sort of transition to a global world government that is run by corporations and is dominated by his corporation and run by him. Hmm. Um, Oh, and then there's also... uh, and his daughter is telling the story. The daughter, mm-hmm. his daughter, um, it has been in prison because she's suspected of killing her father. And um, and she, you can see that I need more practice on this elevator pitch, right? Um, so, no, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and she's been suspected of killing him. And she's telling the story of him and his life and his company and her own life as a, as a sort of uh, way to sort of redeem herself. 
definitely. It's so funny. When I first picked up the book, I try not to even like, you know, I get pitches from publicists. So it tells me what the book's about. I try to like not read too much of it. And for some reason, even though I read what your book was about and the cover's pretty modern, I was like, oh, this is gonna be like historical fiction. Like I forgot by the time I read it that it was not historical fiction. It was like, you know, tech satire basically. Um, so it, it, I think your elevator pitch is perfect because I think when people see it, they're like, oh, the Immortal King Rao, it's about a king named Rao and it's historical fiction. No, not historical fiction. Right. Definitely modern. Um, yeah, and I loved it. It was it's, it's such an interesting way to think about what the world could be like if it tilted a certain way with tech, for sure, um, and all these companies. Your background is in tech writing, you, your tech journalism. Um, were you thinking about this book while you were covering uh, technology and tech companies or did it kind of, how did this all come together? So I graduated from college in 2004 and I went to Stanford, which I bring up because around um, the time that I was like finishing college and deciding what to do next, a lot of people I knew were graduating and like going to work at Google, which was about to go public that year or Facebook, which was still tiny, um, but had start Stanford was like the second campus, I think on which it had opened. And so it, it, there were like these close ties already between Facebook and the Stanford campus. And they were hiring a bunch of Stanford kids. Um, so like these tech companies that were emerging at the time or getting bigger at the time were like very much in the zeitgeist and the circles I was in. Right. Um, and then I graduated and I got an internship at, I, I had been interning at, um, at, newspapers. That was what I wanted to do with my life. And so I graduated and I got an internship at the Wall Street Journal's Bureau in San Francisco. And by virtue of being like the 22 year old in the office, I ended up being the one who started to write about Facebook and YouTube and those kinds of companies. Um, And at the same time, I had officially, that internship turned into a job and I had officially been hired to cover um, like these, these big, um, enterprise tech companies, like companies like Oracle. Hmm. Um, and so I was learning a lot, both about like these companies that were founded in like this really pivotal period in the 1970s that had become huge and Facebook and small companies, smaller companies, then smaller companies like that, where it was like a bunch of guys who were around my age. Um, so I did that for three years and then I took a two-year leave of absence and went to graduate school to study creative writing. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I, I didn't think I was going to write a novel about tech companies. Like that was not at all on my radar. I thought I was escaping all that, <laughs> but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so that's how, that's some of the germ of how this novel came to be. Definitely. And another thing I want to bring up just because, you know, it's about uh, a small Indian boy who uh, immigrates to America. And then your bio starts with you were born in uh, Canada to Indian immigrants. Then you grew up in Oklahoma and then Seattle. And then you mentioned you went to Stanford. Those are all very different places. Yeah. Um, how did like your, your, your upbringing, your, all, all the places in your life kind of feed into this novel or did it in any way? Um, all of them did. Mm-hmm. So um, the novel, one of the main settings of the novel is, um, is a sort of, dystopian future version of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I consider home. My family moved there when I was in the eighth grade. And that was, let's see, that was like 1995, um, which was also around the time that Jeff Bezos Mm -hmm. was um, building Amazon out of like a garage in Bellevue, which was the next town over from my town. Um, And so I have like a really 
strong affinity with, I think like the landscape of the Seattle, of, of Seattle, the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with like, I just have a strong sense of how it really changed a lot over the past 20 years or so, because, you know, even after leaving Seattle for college, I would go back and visit all the time. Um, and then another big setting for the book is this coconut grove in India in the 1950s. Um, and that coconut grove is based um, very heavily on the coconut grove where my dad grew up um, uh, in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So basically, wherever you live, there's going to be some big tech company that <laughs> comes from it. Seattle, Stanford, you're in Fort Collins now. So Colorado is like the next tech bubble. That's right. That's I'm right. predicting based on your life. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So so you're at you. You go to Iowa. You're doing creative writing and you thought you weren't going to write about tech, I guess. When when did you start writing about tech in Immortal King Row? Like when did this like why did it happen at at Iowa or after? So this was we sh- I should say this was thirteen years ago. So sure. I, I need to like jog my memory on some of these things. But what I do distinctly remember is that during my first year of graduate school, that winter I was traveling with my dad and his wife in South America. My dad's wife is Brazilian, and we were mm. traveling. Um, we spent time in Brazil and then we were on a train in Peru and my dad was teasing me about like just working on short stories and like, when are you going to write a novel? Nobody reads short stories. And so teasing him back, I was like, all right, dad, give me an idea then. What should I write my novel about? And he gave me a couple of really dumb ideas. And then he said, well, why don't you write about our family story? You know, why don't you write about the coconut grove where I grew up? And it was, um, there was a lot of family drama in that place. Um, Mm. so it was like just narratively an interesting place. Um, and a place I felt compelled by because I had some of my roots there. And so I said, okay, that's interesting. And I wanted to write about it, but I felt that because I had never lived there, I'd gone back and visited, but I'd never lived there. And I don't speak my family's language that like, mm. there are a lot of ways in which like, I felt pretty divorced from the kind of cultural and social and political and economic landscape of like the place where my dad grew up. So I felt poorly equipped to like write a straightforward book from the point of view or even the perspective of like somebody who had actually grown up there in the 1950s. So I felt like I needed this like mediating device. Um, And at the time, my husband and I were watching that Battlestar Galactica reboot from Mm -hmm. like the mid 2000s. And if you saw that and if you remember, there's like this technology essentially in that reboot where like there's a sort of like digital there there's a way to sort of like use technology to inhabit other people's con to inhabit people's consciousnesses basically. And so I thought like, Oh, well that a tool like that would be nice. Um, and then at the same time, I was thinking about these tech companies that I had been writing about. And so all of these ideas sort of came together for me and sort of like gave me those, these three ingredients. One is King Rao growing up on a um, on a coconut grove. Mm-hmm. The other is King Ram moving to the U.S. and starting a tech company. And the third is this technology that would, this sort of like futuristic technology that would allow somebody to access his memories. Like those are three ingredients that I started with. And then mm-hmm. the book went from there. You briefly mentioned this was 13 years ago. What was the writing process like over the past decade? Like, were mm. you, were you consistently working on it? Was it put away? 13 years is a long time. And I know I, like, I, I don't say that as like, how did you not finish this quicker? Most debut authors I talk to, they're like a decade, decade and a half. It's all the same, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started this book in the summer before my second year of graduate school, my second mm-hmm. and final year of graduate school. And I was like working on it 
in earnest while in grad school. And then I graduated and I went back to the Wall Street Journal because I'd taken Mm -hmm. a leave of absence to go to grad school. So I had this job that was waiting for me to go back. Um, And ever since then, from then until pretty much now, like I've just been working nonstop, right? Like I haven't, I haven't taken much time off just to work on the book. Um, And so I would like, there could, there were periods of years that went by when I didn't touch it, you know? Um, And then there were periods where, especially toward the end, um, when I started, I moved from working full-time at the wall street journal and later at the New Yorker to Mm -hmm. freelancing. So there were later periods where I could take like a month sometimes, or maybe two months to just focus on the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, so it really varied. Sometimes I was not working on it at all. Sometimes, you know, like there were two week periods where I'd go to a residency, a writing residency and work on it. And then sometimes it was like, you know, at 1045 at night, I would like open Google docs on my phone and adjust a word here or there you know yeah yeah I mean because I, I was just trying to get the timeline of your career because I know you yeah we're at the Wall Street Journal and then ended up at the New Yorker and and then your bio says you know I've edited and freelanced at all these places etc cetera, etc cetera. so I just couldn't imagine trying to balance all that just even like the hustle of being a freelancer out like if that's full-time plus writing a novel you know, it's just wild to me. Like, yeah, I can't believe no, people do I it. Agree. <laughs> I am with you. I, am I can't believe people that. do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about just like your readers and like how you share your work as you're working on it. I know your husband is also a writer. Does he see a lot of your work or does he see none of it? Do your friends see it? Like who sees your work as you're working on it? Yeah. Um, okay. I'm so dependent on readers. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is partly because I I have a background as a journalist, but like, I feel um, like, I feel like my perspective about what my book is, how my book is functioning and like where, where it's working and where it's not like is really just one perspective. And so I feel very like, like, I feel very interested in like knowing how other people are engaging with it. Like that feels sort of centrally important to me. So, um, I started this book, the, like I started this book, like I said, before my second year of graduate school and the writer, Elizabeth McCracken was teaching at Iowa that semester. And she Mm -hmm. taught this thing called the novel workshop. Like she taught a workshop where we each shared 80 pages of a work of a book in progress. Mm -hmm. And so the very first time I shared this was with people was in that class. So that was late 2009. Um, and it was 80 pages of a draft of the book. Um, And so, you know, 10 people saw it then. And um, I think I've shown drafts of the book to like each draft of the book since then. And there have been many, many drafts was seen by like a good handful of people. So I think, God, at this point more like by the time, you know, like it got bound in galley form, um, I think at least like a dozen friends, like a dozen to 15 friends had read full drafts. And my husband, uh, the writer Andrew Altschul is one of my is probably like my 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 biggest reader um, and may, probably my best reader. I would say he's read. I feel like he's read maybe a half a dozen drafts of this book, but <laughs> poor guy um, over the, over the years and given me feedback. Um, so that's been a really, really important part of the process for me. Like I just I get those notes back from people and I really take them seriously. I sort of take them as like a roadmap for what I need to do next. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to talk a lot about your husband, but he has published three books. Um, the uh, the Gringa is the most recent one. 
one, and I just, I just find this weird because I love that book and I love your book. It's just like the fact that there's like a couple with like a powerhouse of writers. Um, oh, that's good. I'll tell him that. Do, do I love do, it too. Do you ask him to like when he's reading? Um, do you ask him to look for certain things or just say, here, tell me what you think? Like, what is, what is that like readership, uh, writer relationship looking like for you too? Um, we, we had heard about friends who go and like write together. Like they take, you know, two weeks or whatever, or a week and go rent a house or go mm-hmm. rent a little cabin and write together. And at, at the end of every day, show each other their work. Um, and I remember once we we went to Maine. Mm. Um, this was before we had a kid. We went to Maine for like, you know, a long weekend or a week or something. And we were writing. And the very first day we were like, let's do that thing that our friends do. And we, <laughs> he started, I think, and like read me a page. It was of the Gringa, actually. It was like mm-hmm. he read me like a, the first page or two of the, <laughs> of the book. And I said something that like made him recoil. Like he was like, that's not what I, I like gave him this feedback that I thought was like very neutral and like, just like a comment. It wasn't yeah. like, I was like, Oh, it was interesting how blah, blah, blah. And he was like, that wasn't what I meant to do at all. <laughs> and then after that, we like, we never shared our work that way with each other yeah. again. However, we both um like uh, 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 over the course of working on a book, like we both will have the other person read at least one and usually several drafts of the book and like talk about it in that way. So we sit down, um, and we usually do say like, here are some things I'm thinking about, um, but also sort of like let the other person just talk to us about their experience of it. The way you would do with a friend, but it's like more emotionally fraught because it's your spouse. So now the book's coming out and you already mentioned like a dozen of people probably have read the book countless times. Have you, and, and, you're, and you're getting a lot of good feedback, a lot of good reviews. What do you anticipate, or what do you want readers to take away from King Rao, the story, the book, the writing? What, what, what are you hoping people take away after they finish the last page? I think I can honestly say that now that the book is out of my hands, I feel in the same way that like, I really respect the sort of like the perspectives of friends who read drafts of the book, right? Like just alongside my own minds, one, they each have their own. Um, those are useful to me as a writer. And then now that it's out of my hands, um, I am really interested in knowing how people experience the book. Um, and I guess what I would say is like, I hope like the book is doing a lot of different things. And so I kind of think it would be fun if different people come away with it from it really differently. Like you described it as a kind of like tech industry satire, but I think honestly, one could also read this book as historical fiction, yeah, I guess right? You're right um, yeah. um, I love the parts that are set on the on the family coconut grove in the 1950s. Those are some of my favorite parts. Yeah. And those are the parts of the book that came first too. Um, uh, there are also some thematic things um, just about the role of technology in society um, and the role of the role of like corporatized technology mm-hmm. in society that I hope people think about. Um, the book is not meant to be a didactic book. It's not meant to sort of provide answers, but um, I hope people engage with some of the questions that it's raising. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I could talk to you about this book forever. I, I do want to talk about, um, so you, you live in Fort Collins. I live in Denver currently, or I moved here just right before the pandemic. And um, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop is near me and you are a mentor in the um, book project. And I just want to talk about like what, 
Lighthouse is about kind of your perspective and, and kind of what this book project is. I think it's important that more people know about things like this. Yeah. So I agree. Um, I, I do a lot of mentoring in various, um, in various capacities. Um, you know, and I also work as an editor, as we talked Mm -hmm. about, and it feels to me like they're like, there are these sort of like well-known institutions that can sort of like get people on a path to being writers um, or nurturing themselves as writers and eventually publishing books, maybe like the Iowa Writers Workshop, which, which I attended, right. Or a place like the New York Times Magazine where I've edited or the New Yorker where I've edited. Um, uh, And the thing that I love about Lighthouse and then other community writing organizations like that is that um, they like, I feel like they provide really similar actually resources to something like an MFA program, um, but they're locally based. Um, uh, you can do some of like, you can participate relatively affordably in some of these things. They're accessible to all kinds of people. Um, so I think Lighthouse plays a really important role in the community and just like, yeah. like b- making people aware of, of like ha- ha- what, what it might mean to pr- pursue a career as a writer. Um, I love, I love teaching in the book project. Um, and since you're giving me the opportunity, I'll give a plug for it. The thing that I love about the book project is that it's very like it's sort of goal oriented. So what it is, is a two-year program where people are working on a particular book project. Um, and at the end of the program, um, they have a manuscript, they've gotten some, some, some reads on that manuscript, um, by mentors in the book project. And, um, and so it's sort of like, um, like getting an MFA or taking creative writing classes, except like it's all toward the goal of, of publishing a book, producing a book, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. No, it's such a unique thing. And um, yeah, like right when I moved here, so I moved here basically February 1st, 2020 Okay. pandemic hit March 13th. I was like, I'm signing up. I was like, I'll volunteer for everything. And I still get like the monthly, oh, hey, we need volunteers. And at the time I was just like, Oh, it's the pandemic. Like I barely want to go out. I barely want to do anything. So now that I think like the world is finally starting to open up, I was like, yes, I can finally start volunteering and doing things with Lighthouse. Like I wanted to, two years ago. Lighthouse is great. I, yeah. I highly recommend it. And it's a really warm, like Lighthouse in particular is just a really warm community, I think. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, wrapping up, um, other than mentoring, other than writing, um, most writers are voracious readers what have you been reading that's been or or that you want to read that's on your radar what's kind of percolating in your your interests um can I mention some books that are coming out is that all right yes I that's my favorite please oh yay okay (laughs) um so one book I recently read and I loved is this book by a writer called Sarah Thuncombe Matthews called um all this could be different um and it's like it's it's a story of, um, it's like also in some ways a story about capitalism, but very different from mine. Um, it's a story about this like young woman in Milwaukee, um, in like the late two thousands who she's gay. Um, and she's sort of like making her way as a young person and like, just trying to navigate like work and love and life. And it sounds like that sounds, my description is really generic, but the language of the book is like, so sharp and original and different. Like it's just written in a way that like really flew off the page for me. So I love that book. Um, I know the writer a tiny bit, but this isn't like a plug mm. for my friend. Like I truly like the, love the book. Well, um, and then the, 
to interrupt real quick, I was just emailing their publicist about her being on the podcast. So yes, oh, I also so love the podcast. So yeah, but what other books are on your radar? Yeah. Um, so another book, um, so that comes out later this summer. Mm-hmm. Another book that I loved that comes out um, also in the summer in July is a book called Brother Alive by the writer Zane Khalid. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Adam, yet, or if it's on your no, radar. I'm typing it into my spreadsheet right now, though. Oh, he'd be a really, actually, he'd be a really interesting podcast guest. Cause I think he's had a pretty interesting life. Um, uh, and it's just a, it's a brilliant book. Um, again, like the writing is just so striking, so original and just really smart. It's like one of those books where you're like, how does this writer know all this? You know, mm-hmm. like there's like this really intelligent sensibility in the writing itself. Um, and that book is really hard to describe. Um, it's about these, um, God, I can't even describe it, but it's set on Staten Island. Um, It's about like these three boys who um, are adopted as infants. And then they live like um, above this mosque um, in Staten Island and are kind of raised by this um, imam. And um, and so it's like about their life together. And then it's also about like the this like their their sort of adoptive father's mysterious origins and how he became the way he is. And again, I'm like, my description isn't doing justice to it, but it's so good. I find describing books, like it's the hardest thing. So it's like, here's what I, like the, the publisher wants us to describe the book as, but like, <laughs> right. what is, like, but it's like, that's not really what I took away from it or that's not what struck me. So I always have like the most generic descriptions. Like, yeah, it's about a kid and a tech company. Right. <laughs> you just want to be like, just read it. Just read yeah, it. Yeah, just read it. <laughs> oh, man. Any others? I feel like I kept interrupting you after you were about to. Um, no, those are two that I'm, I'm yeah. sure I can. I'm sure I have many others, but those are two that immediately come to mind. Thank you so much to Wayne Ivara for joining the podcast today. And thank you all for listening to Day Beautiful. As always, you can find us at Day Beautiful on all social media, at daybeautiful.net for all author interviews and book recommendations. I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs>